This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Hello, I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO of the Australian Museum. And for the next 15 minutes or so, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for an insider's look at our extraordinary collections and research activities. Now, I have with me today Dr. Rebecca Johnson, who leads the Australian Museum Research Institute. And she is the first woman in the history of the Australian Museum to lead the Research Institute. She also leads our education and learning programs here. And it's wonderful to have you here today, Rebecca. Welcome. Thank you so much, Kim. I'm delighted to be here. I'm sure as people walk past our building in Sydney, they look up and see Australian Museum Research Institute and wonder what goes on behind there. So tell us a bit about it. Yes, uh, look, it's a, it's such a common thing, Kim, that people don't know that we do science and they don't know that we've been doing science. We're the second oldest scientific institution in this country. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong about what the fifth oldest natural history museum in the world to I do science. I think that's about right, yeah. And so so we have an incredibly long, proud and rich history of doing science in all of its various forms since our establishment in 1827. It, so it's something to be so incredibly proud of and I'm more than happy to talk about it at any opportunity because I think it's something that people just need to know about. Now, you've actually been working at the at AMRI, I'm going to call it the Australian Museum Research Institute, at AMRI for quite a long time, haven't you? How yes, long? I have. I've been at the Australian Museum since uh, for over 12 years now. So I started in 2003. and um, Where it, from? How did you get here? What's my, my journey? I came from Boston. <laughs> um, uh, where that I was... is not a Boston accent. <laughs> I don't believe you. Yeah. Okay, I could potentially do it, but um, that's probably not a wise thing. Um, I, I was doing a postdoc there. So I was a junior researcher doing a project on invasive wasps. Where were you doing that? I at? was doing that at Tufts University. Uh-huh. So um, in, in just up the road from Harvard, actually, um, in Somerville. So I was there and I was offered this position at the Australian Museum to run the DNA laboratory. And so I, I, it was a fairly junior position and I thought, wow, this is what an incredible opportunity and I'm from Sydney. So I was able to, I decided to finish up my research in Boston. And come home. And come home to Sydney. Well, let's wind back, can we? Because you said you're from Sydney. Where, where did you go to school, Rebecca? I went to school at the local high school, Baron Joey High School on the Northern Beaches. Oh, a Northern Beaches girl, like <laughs> myself. Good that on you. That's true. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I did my um, early studies there. and Were you a nerd at school? Uh, yes. A science nerd, I, I mean, I in was, a good way. I was a nerd, definitely, and I really liked dancing. So uh, if I have, if I run into people that haven't seen me f- since school, they might ask me if I became a dancer. <laughs> so definitely not. <laughs> well, I guess you're learning uh, in a large institution like ours and in the whole world of science to dance around politically now. Oh, yes. I, so I'm quite agile, I think. <laughs> so what? who was it or what was it that really fired your interest in science? Uh, yeah, that's a, lots of things. But I think the earliest um, moment that I can remember when I really wanted to become a scientist was that when I was about 11 years old. I read a children's book called Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. And it was, so it was a fictitious children's book about a little girl who um, had been around when the bomb was dropped in Hiroshima. 
And um, this book was about she was diagnosed with leukaemia, which was obviously something that was very common for people that were there before and after, actually. And um, it, it was a it ended up I was an eleven year old child loving this story, and Sadako was um, folding cranes because the 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 idea was that she would have a wish granted if she was able to fold a thousand paper cranes. And um, she didn't get to a thousand paper cranes before she died. In that's the book. a pretty sad story. It was a really sad. I I, I th- still can't really re- read it without having a few tears. Um, and definitely, when you're eleven, used to kind of you know the Disney ending. It was a real shock. And um, my I remember so distinctly telling my parents that I wanted to find a cure for cancer because I was so sad about this book. And um, so I guess I look back on that moment and think. Um, Obviously, I did not go into medical research, but the essence of what I wanted to do back then was to do something to make a difference, to to harness science to make a difference that would change things. And I really feel like I get that chance every day. So you did science through the high school certificate? Yes, I did science. Um, and then what, I, what discipline? All disciplines? Um, no, actually, I um, only did chemistry. Wow, not in biology. No. <laughs> And so I had a lot of biology learning to do when I got to university. And so I went to the University of Sydney and um, did my undergraduate and my honours there. And then I got the amazing opportunity to go down to La Trobe University in Melbourne to work with an eminent um, social insect geneticist. And um, I, I, I must also acknowledge my honours supervisors who were at Sydney University who were incredible fruit fly geneticists. Which is, of course where DNA study really stems from, doesn't it? The study of the fruit fly. Yes, yes. And actually, they were working on Queensland fruit flies, which were a little bit different. Um, but again, I was what, really... they had different accents? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're actually a completely different group. But um, I was really interested in those because they're, they're a pest and they cause a lot of damage to crops and agriculture and there's a lot of um, a lot of work trying to, to find them and just identify them from the larvae. Were they an introduced species? In no, Australia? they're native. Native they're just um, they're just really damaging if they get around into into agriculture effectively. So the study of DNA was relatively new then when you were at La Trobe. Yes, it was relatively new. It had been around. Um, it, it was it was it was long. It was laborious. It was expensive, um, and so I, I felt very incredibly privileged to be working with someone that was a very very highly respected Australian geneticist, and his name is Ross Crozier. And so I spent my PhD there, and there I worked on um, weaving ants, so looking at the origin of these behaviours in ants and at the molecular level. Now, there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about the glass ceiling for women in business. Does that exist for women in science? Um, it, look, you cannot deny that the, the, the sheer numbers or the sheer proportions of females in the senior echelons are, are nowhere near. Do not reflect the proportions of females in the in the in the junior levels of science. Now, why is that? I I think probably you could probably call it the glass ceiling in, in that people um, just end up dropping off for various reasons. To have families or probably to do some, through all sorts of lifestyle else. choices and. Um, and, and as a consequence, academia is very tough and the way that people are judged is it's very tough to do both. So you and I were both part of the Women in Science seminar at the University of New South Wales last year 
And one of the issues that came up there was that the actual scientific method, the way academia is structured, does not lend itself to women progressing because of the number of papers that you have to produce and citations as you climb up the ladder. And then when women leave to have their families as well, they should. Trying to get back in is very difficult and they can't make it up the ladder. Yeah, it is, it is, those are, are very, very accurate assessments of the the very um, cutthroat world that academia, academia can be. And it, there are other things that are perhaps even not quite as obvious. And those are things like a, a woman might have a, she might be on a short-term contract or on a, on a fixed-term contract. And um, it's very e- easy to end that when someone goes on maternity leave because the money kind of runs out effectively, so to speak. And and so those things are things that are almost unconscious that someone's contract comes to an end, they finish their job, they go off and look after children. And so I'd really like to see some kind of continuity where people are encouraged to, to where, where contracts are less tied to young women who are having families because it's, it's easy to drop off and not even recognise that that's happening. Yeah. Now, I mean, we're very proud here at the Australian Museum that we have a women leader of the uh, Research Institute, and we're also very pleased at the number of women scientists in your whole group. Um, There are some outstanding women who really have made an extraordinary difference in their fields and their research work. But I'm going to um, ask you now a couple of things. What's the most fun thing you've ever done at the Australian Museum or, or that you have in the collection? Oh, the most fun thing that I've ever... I, I find it... That's a really difficult question because one of my philosophies is to have fun all the time, <laughs> within reason, of course. But um, so I, I try and make fun out of everything. What's my most fun thing in the collection or my most favourite thing, thing in the in collection? Favourite thing in the collection, yeah. um, That's, again, really, really tough because we have an incredible collection here at the Australian Museum. I think... It, it would have to be the pig-footed bandicoot, though. Ah, now the pig-footed bandicoot's a favourite because <laughs> it was discovered by Jared Kreft, a former curator of the Australian Museum, one of my predecessors. He was, what, the seventh curator-director of the museum. I'm the 17th. And uh, we hold Kreft in high esteem here. We certainly do. And these pig-footed bandicoots, they, um, Kreft, was, he went out and collected a whole bunch of them on a field trip. And he had them in captivity and he was studying their behaviour. And he actually decided, he, halfway through the field trip, he ran out of food and he started to eat them. <laughs> so there are only about 20 of these specimens known in the world. Well, there were no McDonald's in those days. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have some of them and they're not exactly uh, show specimens, but um, they're incredibly precious scientifically and also historically. But we also know that uh, Kreft, of course, apart from eating the pig foot of Bandicoot, he also discovered the lungfish by consuming it at a dinner party as well. So he was quite known for this. He was a, a wonderful person. I say to everyone, go and look him up. He was an extraordinary Australian. In fact, he's even featured in our Trailblazers exhibition, uh, Australia's 100 Greatest Explorers, or 50 Greatest Explorers. I'd love to have 100 of them. 50 Greatest Explorers on here at the museum at the moment because of all the extraordinary work he did. There's such a wonderful history of expeditions and exploration and trailblazing in museum scientists, and it's a treat to have people like Kreft and Tim Flannery recognised. Yeah, another uh, wonderful scientist here from the Australian Museum, Professor Tim Flannery, former Australian of the Year. But Rebecca Johnson, you're a trailblazer in your own right, forging a wonderful path for women in science. But I've got to ask you, what are your future plans? 
oh, I've so much to do here at, at Amory. I'm so passionate about the work that we do. We have some extraordinary scientists, as as you have already alluded to. Um, our, our three most senior scientists, two of them are women. And so we, we are very, very fortunate here to have that kind of leadership, that kind of expertise. And my future plans are sharing that with as many people who are prepared to listen as possible. And that's actually not that difficult because the work that we do is so important. It can be translated in so many different worlds. And that's what I would like to see. Well, it's such an eye-opener to understand a little bit more about the science at the Australian Museum Research Institute and to know that it has such practical application in the community, whether it's um, around conservation of species, as you've been involved in with the koala, or the impacts of climate change on the habitat of our native flora and fauna. I mean, my goodness, what would Australia be without its iconic animals? And thank you for the work you do to help protect and preserve them. Thanks, Rebecca Johnson. My pleasure. Now, we'll be doing these podcasts weekly so that you get an insight behind the scenes into the Australian Museum. Of course, it's Australia's first museum and as such has this extraordinary collection, both a natural science collection and a wonderful cultural collection and each week we'll be talking to some of the personalities at the Australian Museum about the work they do. So join me next time on this Australian Museum podcast to speak with Dr Chris Reid. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.